Hello and welcome to the 8th Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Cricket Lou here with my co-host, Matt Larson. Hi, everybody. After a long absence, we might add. Yeah, we, we kind of went on unofficial hiatus, but I guess uh, that's the risk of having uh, uh, having a job, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of, uh, a job of and a life. Gainful employment, yeah, yeah, and, and trying not to give uh, the family too short shrift. Yeah, do you think people had given up on us? Well, I, I don't know. I guess we'll find out, won't we? Yeah, we'll see if anyone downloads this. Yeah, yeah. But we are back and uh, better than ever. Well, or at least as good as ever. <laughs> and we do have uh, a small backlog of questions that have come in. So shall we go ahead and jump right into those? Yes. And remember, we, we have to call it the mailbag. That's right. We will reach into the mailbag. And the first uh, letter that we have in the mailbag is from Mark Costlow. And he says... Uh, Hi, I'm part of the problem. I want to become part of the solution. Well, that's always a good way of starting things, isn't it? But I need a little advice. Our small regional ISP has an open recursive name server. We know it's bad. We want to change it. The increase in amplifier attacks makes us nervous. We generally consider ourselves to be very good net citizens, and we don't want to squander our good name. The problem is we know this change will disrupt a bunch of people. The name server in question has been in service on the same IP address for 15 years, and all manner of situations over that stretch of time has led people who are no longer on our network to continue sending us queries. We'd like to try to identify at least some of the people who are using us for recursive queries and notify them of the change before we do it. In most of the cases, it will be a simple thing to fix proactively, but in many of the cases, it would be a bloody mess if we do it reactively. We have some ideas for identifying some of these people so we can notify them. Uh, for example, correlate their IP address with login records from our POP or IMAP servers. But I'm stuck on the first step, how to get a list of IP addresses that are sending us recursive queries from outside our network. DNS cap seems like it might be just the thing, but it wasn't immediately apparent how to identify recursive queries. So that's, that's the gist of the question. There is a, a postscript after that. The, the first thing I have to say is that uh, it's certainly commendable, I think, of, of Mark and Mark's organization not to want to cut people off and to be willing to go to what seem, seems like uh, fairly involved measures to figure out who uh, to contact, don't you think? Yeah, I do. I think a lot of people would just come from the tough love <laughs> school of operations, which is this hurts you more than it hurts me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I can't imagine. Uh, you know, we, we should give we should give uh, the organization uh, that Mark works for some credit. It's uh, Southwest Cyberport, but obviously these guys are are taking very good care not only of existing customers but even of past customers and of people who simply have some excuse for <laughs> using their recursive name server over time. Um, well, and good for them to want to shut down a recursive name server in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So their their hearts are definitely in the right place. Um, I, my first reaction, and I know we discussed this just briefly um, before we got on the call, was to use query logging. Uh, Mark does not say what kind of name server he uses. Um, actually, uh, he does later on in the message, he mentions that it's bind 9.4.2. But on a bind name server, if you turn on query logging, the query logging output that appears in syslog will actually have uh, not just the IP address uh, of each querier and the query that they're, they're sending you, but it'll have a little plus sign after the XX that uh, designates a log query if it's a recursive query. 
So you can pretty easily parse that stuff out with Perl or uh, SED or awk or your favorite tool. Yeah, and I would say that if you were going to have this going for a long time, which is probably what you would want to do, if you're not getting an awful lot of queries, chances are your name server is not even going to break a sweat, and you're not even going to notice that this that this feature's on. But you probably don't want it going through syslog, and you can use binds logging substatement to send it to a file. Yeah, that's a that's a good point because there is, of course, a performance penalty that you pay if you send it to syslog, right? Yeah. Now. Uh, you could also use uh, TCP dump. We, we mentioned this before we got on the air here. Uh, TCP dump has all kinds of flexibility. You can reference individual uh, bytes within the IP or UDP header, and you can mask them off so that you can get down to one bit. And you can pull out the RD, the recursion desired bit that identifies a recursive query. So if you wanted to have TCP dump running uh, separately, or let's say on your name server, you could simultaneously be running TCP dump and uh, saving queries. You could you could do it that way, but that probably is more trouble than it's worth when you can do it simply within Bind and have much friendlier output format to deal with, and frankly, much less work. Right. So I guess the next question is, what should Mark do with all of the uh, the logs that he collects? I mean, he'll have a list of IP addresses that are are using his open recursive name server, but not necessarily an easy way to turn those into, um, say, an email address that he can use to, to contact the person responsible for that IP address. No, at least he'd have some sense of the magnitude of the problem, which is better off than he is today. Right, right. He might decide that it's not not bad enough that he could, uh, could, could flip the switch. At some point, he's going to have to do that. Yeah. If you... It, if Mark were, for example, to put uh, an allow query or an allow recursion substatement uh, into his namedy.conf file, restricting access to just those IP addresses that have actually appeared, let's say you just he, he just decides to grandfather everybody in, everybody who's using his name server, um, because it's so difficult to actually try to contact them. Um, what do you think the performance impact would be? I mean, if he ended up having a... a you know, gigantic allow query substatement with hundreds of entries in it. I, I wouldn't think that bad, but then again, I don't know what the bind code does. If it does a linear search through ACLs, probably does. So we still do have the issue of how does uh, Mark identify people who are using his server and, and actually notify them. Right. And you, you can you can use who is. Uh, you know, if you do who is on a net on a net block from one of the regional internet registries, you will get back limited information that you could conceivably turn into a, well, you could either use a general email address or you could use whatever contact email address has come back. Right. And certainly, um, you know, Southwest Site Report may have, uh, for example, customer logs or something. It, it, it might be easier for them if these people had been uh, past customers to, to track down somebody to contact. Yeah, we could be solving a problem that he doesn't have. <laughs> yeah, and he obviously has resources uh, available to him, like these POP and IMAP logs that uh, you know that map logins to uh, to source IP addresses that might be pretty handy. All right, I think we can call that one answered. All right, good for us. Um, do we want to answer the postscript question? Sure, why not? Okay, so Mark adds. A related question, when we introduce inside slash outside views on this bind 9.4.2 server, will that increase memory usage much? 
The server is authoritative for about 2,000 zones and typically uses about 500 to 700 meg of RAM. So I would imagine that he's, he's going to be using um, inside and outside views, one of them recursive to handle those recursive queries, and an, another view just to handle the authoritative zones. Right, uh, so it might net out to no additional increase whatsoever. That, that would be my guess, too, because um, obviously if you turn off recursion in the view in which those uh, authoritative zones reside, then you know, it'll, it'll be some fixed amount of memory and it'll really never change in, in terms of utilization unless you're doing dynamic updates. And uh, the recursive view should be you know, roughly the same as, as the amount of caching that his name server currently does, right? Yeah, although I think this is a, a good, good place for me to put in a plug that I always like to do, and I, I know you feel this way, Cricket. Whenever anybody can, if you can spare separate hardware to have one set of name servers dedicated to being authoritative only and another dedicated to recursive only, that really is a best practice that's worth following, just mainly for security reasons, but also for any number of sort of good DNS hygiene reasons to just really keep those two functions separate. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and Mark certainly seems like the kind of guy who wants to do the right thing. So that's good advice. All right, so I think on to the next question. Okay. Which is another DNSSEC question. I mean, this is the Mr. DNS podcast, not the Mr. DNSSEC podcast. but <laughs> Not that we mind. <laughs> yeah, but we, we certainly seem to have spent more time on DNSSEC than probably most people expected or that we, ex that we expected. Well, all out of proportion, I think, to uh, its rate of adoption. <laughs> That's for sure. All right, well, it's from a guy named Todd Snyder, and Todd says... As a DNS administrator for my company and wanting to ensure that we are good DNS citizens, so we have two people wanting to be good DNS citizens. That's we, great. Yeah, we didn't, didn't, didn't pick these. They're just the two most recent questions. Uh, Todd continues, we have started talking about DNSSEC. No one on my team is overly familiar with it, but we understand the idea. What my question to you is, when is a good time to start looking at using DNSSEC? And he's actually got, a, he's got several questions here. I'll just read them all off. Mm -hmm. What are the implications to non-DNSSEC users, servers, companies if we started using DNSSEC on our external name servers? At what point should smaller companies slash providers, in other words, not the U.S. government or big infrastructure providers, when should they start using DNSSEC? And finally, DNSSEC seems to still be under development and changing. When might it settle down so that we were to put, so that were we to put work into DNSSEC, we wouldn't have to go changing it? So those are all good questions. It, if I could sum those up, it, it's basically kind of like uh, we're interested in DNSSEC and we want to do the right thing, and when should we uh, pull the trigger? Yeah, when should we begin? Yeah, well, it, that is a, a, a good question. It's actually a question that I heard um, a number of times. I've heard a number of, of times just over the last couple of weeks. I did a, a week's tour through Europe stopping in uh, Madrid and Stockholm and Copenhagen and um, Zurich and then wrapping up in Frankfurt. And then I did a talk here in, in the Bay Area in Mountain View. And one of the things that I talked about was DNSSEC. And certainly this question came up quite a bit. You know, where, where do I start and when do I start? Because, you know, I don't want to get ahead of the game. Well, let's start from the, the end first. He, he, he's wondering about, is it still a moving target? And, right. and I would say the answer really there is finally no, it's, it's not. 
yeah. the, the, the spec is, is stable and what we have today and what uh, vendors are implementing is what is going to be good, I think, for years to come. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, uh, the last major thing to happen was NSEC 3. And uh, I, I guess if I were um, going to recommend a version of Bind to, to use to experiment on, I'd be, be sure to recommend to Todd to deploy one that actually supports NSEC 3, whether or not he decides to use it. Absolutely. So that means Bind 9.6 at a minimum. Yeah, I, you know, I think that there are actually some NSEC 3 capable bind name servers that are older than that. They're like later bind 9.5 releases, but I'm not totally sure about that. They may have been uh, ports for uh, workshops that were never supposed to see the light of day, like, you know, anthrax escaping the lab or something. But, <laughs> Hopefully but that's it, not quite what NSEC 3 <laughs> is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and the reason for that is that... Uh, you know, that's going to start seeing deployment in some pretty big, important zones like .org and uh, ultimately .com and .net. And so it's going to be very important to have, at least from a recursive name server standpoint, uh, for when you're doing DNSSEC validation of other people's DNSSEC, uh, DNS data, you're going to need a DNS, excuse me, an NSEC3 capable DNS server. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty sure actually Gov is signed using NSEC3. Oh, that's right. That's right. I, for, I keep forgetting about that. So you'd, you'd need NSEC3 support simply to verify um, signed DNSSEC signed zone data in Gov or, or below Gov, I believe, right? Right. Yeah. But I, I think to really answer this question about when to start, we need to talk a little bit about uh, DNSSEC validation and this concept of a trust anchor. Mm -hmm. And... In a perfect DNSSEC world, as the uh, people who designed it envisioned, people in their DNSSEC protocol ivory towers, and, and I would like to think that I no longer inhabit such a place. I think I'm sufficiently realistic. Uh, but in, in a perfect DNSSEC deployment, uh, the root zone would be signed. Uh, all of the top-level domain zones would be signed. And then pretty much once you get to the second level, uh, like, you know, let's say foo.com, it, it's at that level that people, individual enterprises and organizations can start deciding, well, I either want to get on the DNSSEC train and sign my zone or, you know, no, I'm, I'm making the decision I don't want to. But right. if you do decide you want to, then you have this unbroken chain of signed zones starting at the root through your top-level domain and down to you. And so that means that anybody out there who's doing DNSSEC validation, who's actually bothering to verify the signatures on data that you might sign, they can have a single what's called trust anchor configured. All they need to do is trust the public key that signs the root zone, or I should say the public key corresponding to the private key that signs the root zone. Right. And, and if their validator trusts that, they can build what's called a chain of trust from the root zone to the top-level domain zone above you, like let's say .com, and finally, to your zone, let's say, you know, foo.com, to use my earlier example. And that, that's DNSSEC nirvana, if there's just this single trust anchor that everybody can use. And this is exactly like what happens in your web browser. People may not realize it, but your web browser has burned into it, configured by the people who either uh, wrote it or distributed it or both, uh, lists of certificate authorities that it trusts so that when you use uh, HTTP over SSL, your web browser knows whether or not it should trust the certificate if it came from a certificate authority that it trusts. And this is the exact 
analogous thing for a DNSSEC validator. Right, right. And, and actually, it's, it's, the analogy is perhaps even closer because, of course, the web browser today has to have, uh, has to have lots of certificates of lots of CAs. <laughs> and today, in order to do validation of, of you know, any appreciable amount of the namespace that's signed, you have to have quite a number of, of different uh, trust anchors configured in your recursive name server. Exactly. And that's kind of where I was headed with this, which is depending on the popularity of your zone, you could sign it. But if your top level domain, if your parent isn't signed, then there's not an easy way for anybody to reach you with a very commonly used trust anchor, right? Like, let's say that uh, let, let's let's shift to um, let's shift to Sweden to make this example a little easier, because in in .se, the, the top-level domain is already signed. So if you have, uh, you know, foo.se, you can sign your zone, and there's a trust anchor for .se that's, that's widely configured in various places because the .se TLD is signed. And so people can build a chain of trust easily from .se down to foo.se, and they can verify data in your zone. Right. But if we go back to foo.com with the .com zone not currently signed, you know, they... they your parent zone not being signed, there's no way to build a chain of trust to you. So they would pretty much have to configure your zone's public key as a trust anchor if they wanted to be able to verify things in your zone. Right. And that obviously doesn't scale. Uh, you'd have to be pretty important to them <laughs> uh, exactly. in order, in order to, to warrant their plugging your public key in. Right. So maybe if you were a really big bank or a really big enterprise and you made a really big push... Uh, you might be able to convince some small fraction of the DNSSEC validating population out there to configure your trust anchor. But pretty much, you pretty much need to wait until your parent zone, whatever that happens to be, is signed. Well, one of the things that I began recommending on this most recent trip to Europe was that some of the, the larger commercial organizations on the internet, uh, for example, some of the, the banks who had employees attend my sessions, uh, actually go to the trouble of, of signing their external facing zones and then go shop their uh, public key around to the biggest ISPs in the country. Because uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of European countries, if you could hit, say, the top three uh, ISPs in Denmark or in Switzerland or somewhere like that and have them plug your public key into their recursive name servers, you'd actually be enabling, you know, who knows, probably a, a majority, if not a large majority of the population to, uh, to validate your DNSSEC signed data. And then that wouldn't require all that much work, really. Yep, that's, that's a very good idea. And I think that's very realistic, given the way things tend to work in, uh, at least in Europe. Yeah, probably not uh, nearly as easy here in the U.S., I would think, but... no. But that does raise the question of uh, if you are under some of these really popular TLDs like .com, where where are we? What what's the state of DNSSEC deployment with both the root and uh, and some of these TLDs? Well, we, we've already mentioned there are some uh, country code TLDs that are signed. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like four or five. Uh, .gov is signed. Dot right. org has publicly announced that they're going to sign, although I can't recall their timetable off the top of my head. Do you know? You know, I don't remember. If I had to guess, I'd say it was sometime uh, next year. Yeah. And um, I, I, I can say uh, 
at least with regard to .com and .net, uh, VeriSign plans to have those signed uh, sometime in 2011. So that they're they're coming. There there are people actually working on that. In uh, and you know I know that I know that work is happening on that. So you know un, unlike uh, up and, up until recently when VeriSign announced that, people had always wondered, well, what's you know what's going on? Will .com ever be signed? And the answer is yes, it will. .com and .net will be signed, but we are about 18 months to 24 months away because it is uh, a pretty major undertaking. Yeah, yeah. And then I do see um, I do see movement at the root. I think we will see the root zone sign. Jeez, uh, I would hope within that same time frame. That's that's another place where there's been just sort of general despair in the DNSSEC operational <laughs> community, which is you know is the root ever going to be signed? But I think it will be signed um, and. Uh, so I, I have reason to be to be positive. So I think if we're having this conversation two years from now, the landscape would be quite different. Yeah, yeah, I certainly hope so. It seems like every Ask Mr. DNS episode has to has to include some sort of DNSSEC prognostication. I suppose. <laughs> At some point, we won't have to. We can go on to other things. Yeah. Well, and there's one other uh, part of uh, Todd's question that I would that I did want to address, and mm-hmm. he says, uh, "What are the implications to non-DNSSEC users/slash/servers/slash/companies if we started using DNSSEC on our external name servers?" This is actually a really good question. Yeah. In yeah. other words, you know, I think the subtext here is, you know, if I turn on DNSSEC, am I going to break people? Exactly. Who, you know, who, who don't know what DNSSEC is. Right. Right. And the answer has all uh, has to do with uh, the do bit, right? In the in the DNS query, right? Which we've talked about before. The, the, the do bit stands for DNSSEC OK, and it is the bit that gets set when uh, a resolver indicates, or you know, any DNS client indicates that it understands DNSSEC. And a lot of uh, resolvers are are setting that nowadays. I uh, I quoted this statistic in a, a call you were. Uh, you were on. Uh, you and I were on earlier this week. I think cricket. Forty-six uh, percent of the queries we see for .com and .net have the do bit set. Right, and, and we even talked about that. I believe in an earlier episode of the podcast. Uh, you, you. I think Dave Black. I made fun of you because you couldn't remember just exactly why. Um, these name servers that were relatively modern name servers, but were not explicitly configured to do DNSSEC validation, were still setting the DO bit. But you know now, right? I, I do know. Well, I, I did know then. I just sort of temporarily. I'm going to choose to say that I temporarily forgot. All right. Uh, yeah. But uh, but the point is there, uh, there are a lot of uh, resolvers out there that are sending uh, queries with DO set. And if suddenly they start encountering a zone that's signed, uh, that signed zone is going to start sending back larger responses with all the DNSSEC metadata like uh, signatures and NSEC records and various things. And the big thing is that those responses do get larger. And that's probably the thing that you would have to worry about is do you send a really large response to somebody who isn't prepared to accept it? And the issue is probably almost certainly not their their resolver. You know, it's not the recursive name server they're running. Uh, It's probably going to be fine with it, it would be, is there some sort of middle box, we call them, something in between you and they, like a, you know, a firewall, uh, some sort of transparent proxy, some sort of who knows what that would have incorrect assumptions about what DNS packets should and shouldn't look like. 
Exactly, exactly. They might not recognize the record types or might not understand that a DNS message can be as long as an eDNS zero based DNS message can be. Right, so you would run the risk. Uh, the, ex the extreme case would be that you sign your zone and for some small percentage of people who usually query you, uh, you drop off the air. You, you, become, you, you become unresolvable because they have this pathological condition that we've described whereby you know, all along they've been sending uh, queries with DO set because they're running a relatively modern recursive name server. And only when you sign your zone do you start sending back DNSSEC responses that are larger and have this extra stuff in them and something about that causes their, this part of their infrastructure, this middle box, this firewall, this whatever, to start dropping your particular zone's responses. Right. And it, it's almost inconceivable that somebody would write a name server that would set the DO bit and itself not be able to understand or at least pass through DNSSEC uh, resource records, right? Only a madman would do that. That's right. That, that's crazy talk. <laughs> All right. But that, that is a good point. In a way, it's, it's sort of reminiscent of when the behavior of bind changed between bind 4 and bind 8. If you remember... The, the source port behavior changed. That's right, yes. So and, it's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and whereas uh, bind four name servers, if I remember correctly, always sent queries from port 53 and to port 53, as of bind eight, they started sending from uh, a randomly assigned port, uh, which was typically uh, in the, the, what do they call it, non-reserved range? Ephemeral. Something something uh, the, the ephemeral range right an ephemeral port from from uh, the port space above 1023 and a lot of people had written firewall rules that uh, checked to see whether DNS traffic was in fact coming from port 53 and to port 53 and lo and behold people started upgrading recursive name servers to bind date and found out that they couldn't get queries in to some places uh, couldn't get them through their firewalls yeah, I had sort of forgotten about that, but that was really kind of a painful time for a lot of people. And, and you're right that the analogy holds. It, it's exactly the same kind of thing where you mm -hmm. just do an upgrade and uh, you have stuff in between you and the rest of the Internet that makes a certain assumption about DNS traffic, and suddenly that assumption no longer holds and the traffic doesn't get through. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would hope, and I think I, I would even guess, that the problem... This hypothetical problem we're talking about, it's not hypothetical, of course. We've seen it with some middle boxes, but um, I would say it's probably going to be less prevalent, don't you think? I, I would hope so. I would hope so, especially since uh, as adoption is, is taking off, you know, there have been, we've got these other TLDs that are sort of suffering the, the pains. I mean, there's one particular story about some entire town in Sweden had uh, all the same provider and they all everybody had this exact same uh, cable I don't know if it was a cable modem but they had some sort of firewall box that uh, actually didn't pass uh, DNSSEC authenticated answers and so the entire town went off the air as soon as the local ISP started doing DNSSEC validation so <laughs> there, there are going to be there are going to be things like that but the, the point my point here is that with each new TLD and especially once we start to get the larger ones like .gov and especially .org, uh, that's really going to flush out uh, problems like that. That sounds like the plot of some indie movie. I suppose an indie <laughs> movie that nobody would understand. Well, Paige likes to Paige likes to to cite the uh, 
the Simpsons episode where, um, gosh, what happens? I think Marge mounts a, a letter writing campaign because she believes that Itchy and Scratchy is too violent. You remember this one? Vaguely, keep going. <laughs> and so the network has uh, has has Krusty tone it down, and uh, they they end up coming up with a, a a newer, better Itchy and Scratchy, which begins: They love, they share, they love, they love, they share. Remember this one? No, I guess not. I'm no, sorry, I'm letting I'm letting you down in my Simpsons. Uh, and the kids are so bored that they all go outside to play, <laughs> and you you see the the, the idyllic scene of the oh, kids playing nicely. I have seen that. And they're, they're, like they're on the swing end, sets. They're playing tag. They're reading books under the tree. <laughs> I have seen that one. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's life. Life without the internet. Yeah. Well. So, uh, so do I dare try to summarize our, our long answer to this question? Well, we could just ask him to rewind 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess the way I would summarize is that uh, it, it's still pretty early in the scheme of things. It wouldn't hurt to be uh, looking at DNSSEC, just sort of doing some planning to make mm-hmm. sure that your particular DNS vendor uh, supports it or that you have a plan for supporting it both on the... Uh, on your authoritative servers and on your recursive name servers. But I think in terms of actually starting to sign your zone, at this point, there's just not much point until your parent zone, which for most people is, you know, whatever top level domain they're underneath. Uh, until your parent zone signs that zone, there's just not much point in signing your zone. Would you, what, what would you agree? Would you agree with that summarization? I would agree with that. Um, I, I think that it is important, as you say, to make sure that, uh, you know, if you would use a commercial product, to manage DNS, that you make sure that it does support DNSSEC. And it's also important to learn about DNSSEC now so that you're ready once your, uh, once your top-level zone does sign. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I, I'd also want to mention the, the fact that we actually have a, a webinar coming up um, very soon, uh, in, in the next couple of, of weeks at InfoBlox, which actually features um, all kinds of all kinds of DNSSEC talk, and we've got uh, Dan Kaminsky and Scott Rose of NIST, and I know that you worked with Scott on the various um, DNSSEC RFCs, right? That's right. Yeah, so on June 10th, uh, 2009, we've got uh, two airings of DNSSEC, what it means for DNS security and your network. Uh, and everyone, all of our listeners certainly are uh, invited to join in, and you can register on the InfoBlox website. And, and what would that be, Cricket? <laughs> that would be www.infoblox.com. Right. Well, as I look at the uh, the elapsed time tick by, you know, I, th- I think we're at that ideal podcast episode length. Yeah, I believe we are. So I, I think the uh, the only thing to do is to sign off but to first as always remind everyone that we do appreciate your questions and that without questions we'd have to make them up and that would be pathetic and not nearly as interesting in the quest- as the questions that you all send and uh, please remember it's uh, mrdns at ask-mrdns.com that's how you reach us and thanks for listening thanks very much